Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. You may be seated. You know, it's hard to believe it's another Advent season. Seems like we just had one. <laughs> but it is. And this is a good time for us to reflect on the promises of God. I know it's focusing on the promise of Jesus, this Messiah, being sent. But this is but what of one of many promises of God. So I was reading for this. Uh, one person said there are eight thousand eight hundred and some promises in the Bible for God's people and for the world. I didn't have time to check them all out, but I know there's a lot of them in there. God is a God of promise. You know, the angel appearing to Zechariah was a long-awaited promise. There's 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament. God had spoken through his people through the prophets, visions, dreams, in Old Testament times, and all of that was stopped. It ceased for 400, actually it was about 425 years. But what was the last promise? Well, in Malachi 4, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The last promise in the Old Testament was the promise of sending John the Baptist before the great day of the Lord to change the hearts of the people, to accept the awaited Messiah. It was a long time coming, though, 400 years. Why so long? Why did God tarry for 400 years where there was silence? And what happened to God's people in those 400 years? I remember... Every time I preach on this, he always reminds people it's 400 years, but I never 
filled in what happened in those 400 years, so today we're going to fill it in. Not a complete history of it, but to give you a little flavor of what was going on. Well, 100 years prior to this time, the Persian Empire had taken Israel captive and into this intertestamental era for another 100 years they were under Persian rule. But fortunately the Persians let them kind of do what they wanted with their religion. They even let them rebuild the temple. So it was a relatively calm occupation. The Jews rebuilt their temple. They could worship freely but they were still Occupied people. However, Alexander the Great came along. He defeated Darius the Persian. And that gave him control of the Jews and their territories. And Alexander was greatly influenced by Greek philosophy and policies. He wanted a unified language, the Greek language which resulted in the Old Testament being translated into Greek, which we call the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament. The Jews were allowed to perform their religion freely, but also Greek culture was promoted, a culture that was worldly, humanistic, an ungodly practice prevailed. So the Jews could practice their religion, but they were swimming in a sinful society. They were surrounded by sin, and it had devastating influences on them. It's hard when you're surrounded by sin to not be affected by it. Just like we are today, sin affects us, After the death of Alexander, Judea was ruled by various kings, and they all had their little intricacies and whims on how to rule. But the most evil of these was a king named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he started to reign in about 160 B.C., He did not allow freedom of religion. It would not be tolerated. And as a matter of fact, he brought unclean animals into the Jewish temple, got rid of the priesthood, and put up pagan altars. So God's people were under real duress now. But Judas Maccabeus and his band of rebels stood up and there was a revolt. And this was a time of war and violence. There were God's faithful people who said, you can push us so far and that is far enough, then we will result in a violent reaction, and they did. Many were killed, there were wars, there was violence, 
And there was, of course, infighting among God's people on whether we should fight, whether we should not. And because the law of the Lord was lost, just how to restore it. You know, it's harder to restore something when you stray away from the truth because then you get culture, you get customs that you're used to, and you have to challenge your mind as to what is truly biblical, what is truly godly. And they had to shake off the culture and the influences that pretty much ruled their lives from young on. It's hard to do. Around 63 B.C., Pompey of Rome conquered Israel. And that subjected all of Judea to the Caesars. One of these Caesars was the one who would have Jesus put to death. Again, they were occupied, but they still had freedom of religion under Roman rule, for the most part. But now they were swimming in another culture, Greek and Roman. Greek, Roman, and Hebrew culture, all influencing them, surrounded by it. The many sins from the Romans, the idolatry, the Greeks, the mythology, remember all the gods? That Paul looked around, he said, there's altars everywhere for every god. There were God's faithful who tried to stand up. And actually, the conservative group was the Pharisees. They started out wanting to bring back the law of Moses. But remember, they were influenced by their culture, so they wanted to do it top-down. And also, because it was Greek and Roman was so humanistic, they thought they could make more laws and rules adding to God's, and it'd be all right. That's why by the time Jesus walked the earth, he called them the sons of Satan. Another group, the Sadducees, they were influenced by the politicians of the day and the power struggles. And they aligned themselves with the aristocrats and the wealthy businessmen. Again, top-down, ruled by force. They were in bed with the powers to be, and both these groups wanted one thing more than they wanted anything else, and that was to remain in power. Sounds like a lot of our leaders of today. Remember Ananias? We covered him a while back. Josephus said he'd hire his hit men, to take out any competition, rising competition. So there were a lot of difficulties at this time for the Jews, for faithful men and women. You know, what do men and women normally want? What do families want? They want freedom. They want to be rewarded for their own work. And the faithful want to worship God faithfully. And these are all biblical things. That's why men, whether believer or not, strive for it. They want liberty. That's part of God. 
God gives us a liberty. They want to be rewarded for the fruits of their labor. They don't want everything stolen from them. But as we look at this time, many were faithful in spite of these rulers taking what belonged to them, taxing more than they should, putting heavenly burdens on them. That's what Jesus said of the Pharisees. Put heavy burdens on the people that you won't put on yourselves. But even before John entered into his calling, God may have been silent for this 400 years. It's called the 400 years of silence. But does it mean that God stepped back, said, I'm not going to do anything down here? No, God was still in control, and he was working behind the scenes. Because after this 400 years of silence, it would be the greatest story ever told, the greatest history truth ever told. The gospel message would come forth. And God was working in the culture to prepare the way for that message to be spread. Rome was building roads. Ships were being built so that the gospel message could be spread quickly. Alexander had the Bible, or the Old Testament, into the common language, Greek. People could hear the word of God. You see how God was preparing and working in the empire? And you could travel freely in the empire. For the most part, people could travel where they wanted. God was truly preparing the world for the spread of the gospel. You know, God is always promoting his church. Even in times of turmoil. But also, there will always be a remnant. A remnant of faithful saints that God uses in spite of how corrupt the church becomes. In spite of how corrupt the governments become. In spite of how heavy-handed they are, God will have his remnant of people who are faithful. Just like Maccabees and the people who stood up when they did the things in the temple. Men were willing to die to stand up and fight against the power. In the long run, they, in the, they did win. The idols were removed. That king was removed. Because he was causing too much trouble. See, he was one of the sub-kings. He wasn't the big honcho. But God is faithful. And at that time, when the angel appears, let's go back a little bit in our text. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abadah and his wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly. 
in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Here we have truly faithful servants of God. It says they're walking blamelessly. Even though God had not answered their prayers, their prayers for a child. And then that time, not having a child, many considered either your parents sinned or you sinned and were being punished. And it was shameful not to have any children. Yet they were faithful. Just as we must be faithful when we struggle through our lives, through our difficulties. Zechariah was praying when he went in to do the incense. This was the incense that was done on a daily basis, most believe. There are many priests. Some feel that the priests would be chosen for a week. Some, for, they said it was a day. But we do know that it was usually a once-in-a-lifetime deal for these priests to be chosen. And it was chosen by God. They cast lots. You know, the die is cast, but the Lord is the one who directs it. But also we see there are many people praying as you went in to do the incense. A good lesson for us as well. God answers the prayers and when His saints are praying. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Many scholars feel that it was a Sabbath day. Others say there were many faithful there all the, day, all the time. They weren't sure. But again, people were praying and Zechariah was praying. And it was the priest's job to pray for the people. To pray that the sacrifices would be acceptable. He'd be praying for the people. I don't think he was praying to have a child anymore because they were well past childbearing years. Reality had set in that it's not possible anymore. You know, I believe the prayers of those people helped break the 400 years of silence because God's messenger was again among his people. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. I think all of us would be troubled if we saw an angel. It's a pattern that we see all throughout the scriptures. Men are terrified. It's something different, something that we can't hardly comprehend. However, righteous men and women are always comforted. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, 
and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You know how amazing this is. I believe what some of the commentators said that Zechariah was praying for the people, not praying this time that will give me a son. They are well beyond childbearing years. Yet what is answered? Prayers from long ago. Prayers from when they were in their youth. Another reminder for us, God hears our prayers. In Revelation, when they're holding up the bowls of incense, it it said those are the prayers of the saints. Why did God wait to answer their prayers? Why does God wait to answer our prayers? In this case, it was because he was going to give an answer to prayer that was far greater than they could have expected. Far, far greater. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. They're going to get a child, but this was no ordinary child. What did Jesus say about John? Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This child will be great, special. Definitely a child worth waiting for. Sometimes when God delays our prayers, it's for the greater blessing that will come in the future. Our prayers are never wasted. They may be answered in the future. The answer may be no. But God does hear them all. But the world would have to wait for a little while for John the Baptist. Now he's born. We're really not told much about him until he appears again. In Luke 3, 1, 5, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being patriarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, patriarch of the region of Iturea and Traconus, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Albanine, and I'm not going to say these again, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Why does Luke give us all these details? It's history. It's history. We can compare this with non-biblical books, and these people existed, these times existed, these tetrarchs reigning over regions existed. Luke gives us these details to assure us of the validity of the scriptures. Real men, real history. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We're not told how this word came to him. We're not even told why or how long he was in the wilderness. Did he go out in the wilderness to fast and pray like Jesus? Perhaps. We're not told. 
We are told that he obeyed his calling. We are told in other Gospels that he ate wild honey and locusts while out there. He obeyed his calling, and he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. It's taken from Isaiah 40. And I'm going to read the Isaiah passage as well. But I'm going to start in verse 2 because it tells us there, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. He's saying that for God's people, things are changing. Their time of punishment is coming to an end. They paid double for their sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. Prepare. Prepare the people's hearts. And metaphors are used. The valleys shall be filled. That means the lowly will be lifted up. And the mountain and hills shall be made low. The high, the proud, the mighty will be brought down. Lofty men brought down. Political figures brought down. The paths of the crooked will be made straight. You know, God is pouring out his spirit on mankind. What did Mary, in her magnificent prayer, say in Luke 1? She said, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty men from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary's saying the exact same thing that is predicted in Isaiah. This Isaiah is using metaphors. God is coming into the world. He's changing the world. For those who receive him, we will be lifted up. For the meek and the humble. The proud will be brought down. Any system that is not of God will be brought down. It will end. Any kingdom that is not of God's will come to an end. It will be brought down. This is God's earth. He rules, he will have his way among men. Our children are our children's children or their children. As long as our faith is passed on, they will see God reigning. 
we may see God reigning again in our land. He's reigning now. Perhaps we're under judgment. It does not mean that our God is not with us, his people. And that is what we must remember as we go through difficulties in our nation. It's normal. You study history, it's normal. What is abnormal, the peace and comfort that we've had for so many years in America here because of the great heritage our forefathers gave us. That is unusual. But that is coming more and more in this world, and it will. We see it in Latin America, even China. Church is growing. God will have his way among men. We must rely on his promises and be of good cheer, even though we see the difficulties and we're swimming in a sea of filth in this nation right now. Perhaps it's the time before the great blessing is shed on this nation again. That's what we must pray for, the advancements of God's church. The growth of his church should be in our daily prayers. Because it's people like you and I, just like in the time of that intertestinal period, it's the faithful that God uses to advance his kingdom. Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful, and God used them. God will use us when we are faithful. And in spite of the circumstances, the governments, the filth around us, the cultures around us, yes, they will influence us. There will be infighting. There will be doctrinal battles, which are good because we're trying to get to the purity of the church again. But God will use men and women to have his way on earth. Those are promises from God, just as sure as he promised to send his Savior. His Savior is working and reigning now among us, and we should rejoice and be glad in that. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, as we study your word, you are a God of promise, a God of hope. And we just thank you, O Lord, for all the blessings you've given us. And we should be thanking you that we have struggles within ourselves, within our nation, because we should be confronting the culture, the nation, and the world. Let us be characters, men and women of God, that you say of us, they're acceptable to me. They're walking blameless in the way of God.